everyone. We've got Sir Vincent Fien here. I'm going to take a little while to just wait for everyone to uh, come into the room. Always takes a few minutes. Um, we've got a very good turnout again today, so that's exciting. Um, and once we have pretty much everyone in the room, we will hand over to Vincent. But while we wait, um, I just want to thank everyone for coming along today. Um, some of you may be expecting Ahmed Halidi. Um, unfortunately, um, owing to unforeseen circumstances, we're going to have to postpone that one. So we will keep you posted when that might be rescheduled too. Um, so luckily we've got Sir Vincent as our chair to step in when we need him. Um, but with a, a really timely and very, very interesting talk, I'm very excited personally to listen to it. So hopefully you all are as well. Um, Vincent will be talking about how um, he believes the US elections, which we've all, I'm sure, have been following uh, to various extents, um, how it will impact the situation in Palestine and Israel. Um, so, yes, I'm sorry if you were hoping to listen to Ahmed Khalidi. We will have him uh, speaking for us shortly, but we are very lucky to have Vincent. Um, in other... Um, news we have all the recordings and um soon to be the the transcripts as well from our conference last month um so please do check that out on our website i'll be posting the link in the chat box shortly and um as always this event is free um but we re rely very heavily on donations so please do consider um giving us a donation so we can carry on doing these events for free um and some of you have been very kind to send in questions already in advance um, and um, if uh, Sir Vincent doesn't answer them in his talk, I will be answering as many of them as possible afterwards. We're going to be having a Q&A session as always. Um, and while he's uh, talking, please be, feel free to post any questions in the chat box. Vincent himself will not be looking at the chat box because um, he'll be concentrating on giving a very fascinating talk, um, but I will be monitoring it and collecting the questions for him at the end. Um, so, we have got quite a lot of you in the room now. So let me introduce you to Vincent. Um, most of you do not need the introduction, but um, Vincent is a, a retired member of the British Diplomatic Service. His last post um, and probably most relevant to us now uh, was Consul General in Jerusalem uh, from 2010 to 2014. Before that, he was the ambassador to Libya and previously also high commissioner to Malta. Um, he has studied Arabic, so his Arabic is probably better than mine as a Palestinian. And um, he advocates equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians in line with the mission of the Balfour Statement um, and British recognition, British government recognition of the state of Palestine alongside Israel on pre-June 1967 lines. Um, he is our chair here at the Balfour Project, and um, I will be handing you all over to his very capable hands now. Over to you, Vincent. Thank you very much, Deanna, and thank you for all you do. Um, how may the US presidential elections affect the Israel-Palestine conflict? That's my theme for today. Uh, I began the day by listening to uh, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, who has the distinction uh, of playing a part in the last uh, exercise of presidential democracy uh, in the occupied Palestinian territory, in what I call Palestine. Uh, that was in 2005, when he ran against um, Mahmoud Abbas, and Mahmoud Abbas, as we know, won that election, 
there haven't been any elections since then uh, for the presidency. And the word that uh, Mustafa Barghouti used was relief. Relief at the uh, prospective departure of uh, Donald Trump, and therefore not four more years of destruction, destruction of Palestinian rights. But a question arises, and we'll try to talk about it in this uh, next hour. Uh, will President-elect Biden prioritize this very sensitive political issue, very sensitive inside the United States? We can't and shouldn't ignore the USA. How can you? Still the world's only superpower and Israel's closest ally. Capable of doing a great deal of good and as we have seen in the last four years, a great deal of harm, particularly on this issue. So today, for many, including me, a sense of relief. At the same time, on this issue, it's evident that the US alone cannot, or maybe will not, make a decisive difference. And that means that those of us who want to see change in the region, in the direction of equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis, need to keep raising awareness, persuading, lobbying, making a noise. Today, I will talk about the history briefly, touching on Britain's historic responsibility, because that is the leitmotif, the ethos of the Balfour Project charity to examine Britain's role in the first half of the last century and to argue that that responsibility gives us a continuing role in seeking equal rights between the river and the sea. Then I'll talk about where US efforts have led, briefly describe the current dire situation as regards equal rights, where I think it's true to say Trump has been an accomplice to theft, theft of land, theft of rights. And to look forward to the Biden presidency, what to expect, what to look out for, there is urgency, real urgency. The situation is dire on the ground and hope that precious commodity is fading so we need to underline the urgency and we need to try to ensure that this issue has priority among all the other priorities that an incoming president has to deal with. And finally, I'll talk about what we, we, you and I, can do to make a positive difference in difficult circumstances. By we, I mean the British, the focus of our charity, government and civil society, parliament, and the likes of you and me. I'll begin with a bit of history, not a lot. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 was not, in my impression, an Anglo-American creation. It was an Anglo-Zionist creation. It, and the British mandate for Palestine up until 1948 
those two things give us British that ongoing responsibility for equal rights, which we emphatically did not sustain or achieve or indeed properly seek when we arguably had the power to do so. If I may recall one remark by the eminent historian Sir Martin Gilbert, uh, he said in a speech once that if there was one thing that was at the heart of British policy in the mandate period, it was to make sure that the views of the majority were not heeded until that majority was Jewish. As we know, with World War II and all the trials and tribulations of that war, UK power was on the wane well before 1948, and American power was on the up. I find it significant that Ben-Gurion, the founder and first prime minister of Israel, his declaration of Israeli statehood in May 1948, as Britain was leaving, was recognized by the United States seven minutes later. Seven minutes later. That was prearranged and worked well and helped Israel to find its feet in the United Nations. And there may be parallels in the efforts by Palestinians now to acquire recognition as states, as a state, and they have acquired maybe 135, 135 uh, recognitions to date. Uh, sadly, the United Kingdom is not one of them. The UK recognized Israel 70 years ago in 1950, a couple of years after the Americans, partly because of our mandate responsibilities and our wish to think it through. From 1948 to date, the United States has been and is Israel's closest friend and ally. The United States has Israel's back, as they say, militarily, economically, and on the international stage. More than half of US military aid globally goes to Israel. And successive American presidents are keen to ensure that Israel maintains a qualitative edge militarily over all other countries in the region. And it does. It's important to realize to what extent Israel and the well being of Israel is a domestic issue and interest of the United States. One can look to the Trump supporters, the evangelicals who were impressed by the various moves that Trump made in his four years. We'll list them in a minute. But the support for Israel goes wider than that and is bipartisan between Democrats and Republicans uh, in Congress. What does that mean 
Well, to me, it means that an even-handed approach of an honest broker is not really possible for the United States. Despite the valiant efforts of some, and I would include Secretary of State John Kerry among those who made that valiant effort. But can a state which faced with a negotiation will consult one party first, agree on a line, and then present that line as a US line to the other party, in this case, the Palestinians, can they be even-handed? One can hope that one should realize what's happened in the past. My time in Jerusalem, which Diana mentioned, included the beginning of John Kerry's effort. In August 2013, it ended in failure in April 2014, and there haven't really been talks, meaningful talks, between Israelis and Palestinians since then. Joe Biden and John Kerry are people of the Obama eight years. Joe Biden was Obama's loyal vice president for eight years. And you can think back to Clinton and the Clinton parameters, to Bush and the roadmap drawn up with Tony Blair, I think. But it's important to remember when you're thinking about what Joe Biden will do, that he was Obama's vice president for eight years. I believe Obama was probably the president of the United States with the greatest degree of sympathy for the Palestinian cause, for Palestinian rights. But he blinked. He made an excellent speech in Cairo in 2009, condemning settlement expansion, condemning settlements. And then he blinked. Netanyahu went to Congress and outflanked Obama in his own country. I can remember a visit in my time by Vice President Biden to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, which coincided with a new settlement announcement. There was a great deal of anger. Uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton complained. But that settlement now exists. And what I find on settlement expansion and on many other things is that there is a kind of ratchet effect. These things are announced, opposed, happen, are condemned, and then we move on. And we shouldn't move on because the ratchet has moved and it never goes back. So incrementally, what we are seeing with settlement expansion is incremental de facto annexation. Formal annexation may be suspended, but we are seeing de facto incremental annexation and it never goes back. So what of Biden and his priorities? I don't know him. What I know of him 
is that he is pragmatic, realistic, an improvement on his predecessor, intent on healing America and healing US alliances, including with NATO, the European Union and others, focused on climate change and in foreign policy, focused perhaps on China and Iran. So what priority will he give to this issue? If it means a collision course with the Israeli government, the instinct of a president is to avoid collision, to minimize trouble. But if there is going to be self-determination for the Palestinians, which is an aspiration shared by the Balfour Project, settlements need to cease. Settlement expansion needs to cease because that is killing the concept of Palestinian self-determination. So will Biden with Europe stop settlements? We'll have to see. Back to John Kerry, if I may, and that big effort by the US Secretary of State to secure an agreement between the two parties. Someone quite important uh, said, let's get this negotiating plane up in the air and then we'll see where it lands. Well, it landed in a bad place. The effort was there, but there was no structure, no framework. Why not? I fear because if there had been, and it was the framework of international law, of UN Security Council resolutions, we know the numbers, 242-338, then the Prime Minister of Israel would not have played, would not have participated. So what did we end up with? We end up with talks with no framework. That's a recipe for misunderstanding, for duplicity and for failure. I said earlier that John Kerry made a valiant effort. I believe he did. I've just reread his last speech as Secretary of State. For those who wish to find it, 28 December 2016, Trump came into office the next month. The speech is quite prophetic. In substance, what the Secretary of State is doing is defending a United States abstention on a UN Security Council resolution, which Britain backed with France and everybody else. So it was unanimous with a US abstention, which allowed it to pass. That was resolution 2334, which condemns settlements and calls upon member states of the UN to deal differently between settlements and Israel proper. Israel pre-1967. It also condemns incitement, effectively by both parties. In his speech, John Kerry says, 
he fears, not for Israel's survival, but for Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state, by which I think he means democratic within the pre-June 1967 borders. And I'll quote a couple of times from his speech. Quote, the settler agenda is defining the future of Israel. By that he means, and he makes it clear in his speech, the tendency towards one state, greater Israel. Everything under Israel's control from the sea to the river. Quote again, the status quo is leading towards one state and perpetual occupation, unquote. And he uses two words that matter. He sees the future without change as, quote, separate and unequal, unquote. That's as near to apartheid as he was willing to go in 2016. Others have spoken about apartheid since then. And today we can say the word because it's true. Interestingly, Boris Johnson, in March 2017, as our Foreign Secretary, went further than Kerry. In a visit to Jerusalem and a meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu, he said, we need either a two-state solution or you end up with some kind of apartheid system. He then gave an interview to the Jerusalem Post and repeated it. Naturally, this Israeli government objects strongly to the term apartheid, but that's because the truth hurts. In that same Kerry speech, he said, quote, hope of peace is slipping away, unquote. That was four years ago. He also looked ahead to the arrival of Trump without knowing what he would do. And he said, the incoming administration has signaled a different path and suggested even breaking from longstanding US policies on settlements, Jerusalem, and the possibility of a two-state solution. It's now time to stand up for what is right. It's a great speech, but three weeks before he left office, and a speech which has been buried by four years of Trump. Trump did a lot. I don't remember anything that was good. He cut funding to the UN institution dedicated to Palestinian refugees, the UN Refugee Works Agency. He cut US funding to zero, and the US had been the biggest single donor. The UK record on funding of UNRWA is honorable. He cut funding to the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah to zero. He moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I'm relieved to say the British embassy to Israel will remain in Tel Aviv. And he subordinated the consulate general of 
the US, which was the main channel of communication with the Palestinians, he made it a section of the embassy to Israel. He closed the PLO office in Washington. One side benefit of that is that Britain has the attentions of Dr. Hossam Zomlot, the head of mission, Palestinian ambassador to the UK, who was Palestinian ambassador in Washington, is now with us and is a bright man. Trump recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights in breach of international law and tried, I don't think he succeeded, but he tried to take Jerusalem and refugees off the table. He instructed his uh, Secretary of State, Pompeo, to say settlements are no longer illegitimate. He surrounded himself in Washington and Israel with US settler supporters. And he produced the vision for peace, the deal of the century, about which I will speak. Particularly, I'd like to speak about the UK approach to that vision, which was tortuous in the extreme. The UK approach, UK government approach was expedient and Janus-like. If you don't read the text and you see a summary, you might, as Johnson did, refer to Jerusalem shared capital of Israel and Palestine. You read the text and you find that the offer, which is derisory, was Abu Dis outside the wall. Therefore, in reality, not part of Jerusalem. If you don't read the text, there's a reference to two states. There's a reference to Palestinian statehood in that document. But implicit in that document is permanent Israeli occupation of all the land. So we found ourselves in the tortuous situation of welcoming Trump's initiative, but somehow not welcoming the content. Paying lip service to Trump's interest in the region without saying that his interest has been disruptive, destructive, and has trampled on Palestinian rights. We know that the, the Trump administration engages in blackmail. It blackmailed Sudan into normalization with Israel. It attempted blackmail of the Palestinians, essentially saying, come and negotiate away your land, or if you don't, in four years' time, Israel can take it anyway. So at least now, my diplomatic colleagues and successors don't have to tie themselves in knots over the vision for peace. One more thing. Asking the Palestinians to come up with something new 
when their, the PLO existing policy is actually broadly consistent with UK policy is an odd thing to do. And that's what I mean by Janus. PLO policy, like it or not, is Jerusalem, shared capital of two states, negotiations on the basis of 67 borders, an agreement on refugees, security for both states, land swaps. What's going on now? I said the situation now is dire, and it is. I'd like to draw your attention to the fact, which has been in the media, that on the day of the US elections, Israel demolished a Palestinian village, Khirbet Homsa, making 80 people, including 41 children, homeless in the middle of the COVID epidemic. That timing was deliberate to avoid headlines. It got some and it got condemnation from the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy. And the UN called it a grave breach of international law, which it is. But the question is, will the ratchet stop there? I fear not. In January, when I guess Mr. Trump can do no more harm, some things will get better, a bit better, but the fundamentals need to change. The next vice president, Kamala Harris, said just before the election that the Biden administration will renew ties with the Palestinians, oppose any unilateral actions that undermine a two-state solution. Immediate, will take immediate steps to restore economic and humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians. On Gaza, attempt to address the humanitarian crisis. Will reopen the US Consulate General in Jerusalem. Will work to reopen the PLO mission in Washington believes in the worth and value of every Palestinian and every Israeli. Will work to ensure that Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, security, and democracy. The Biden administration will be committed to the two-state solution, oppose unilateral steps, which I think means settlements, oppose annexation, oppose settlement expansion. It's not clear how. Those things are good, but they're not enough. And leaving the initiative to the United States, which is the default position of the United Kingdom and European Union member state governments, isn't enough. Those states don't want the responsibility of action 
rather than words. The Balfour Project position is that we have that responsibility, British, to work for equal rights, and that the only way we can fulfill that responsibility is by advocating and advancing those equal rights and an end to the occupation of 1967. Things went backwards under Trump. To be honest, they went backwards, but more slowly under Obama too, less blatantly. But let's not blame the Americans. That's as much a cop-out as thinking that they alone can solve this. It's easier to see what should happen than to make it come to pass. It's not the job of the Balfour Project to tell Palestinians or Israelis what to do. We reserve our efforts for ourselves and our own government, parliament, civil society. But as a neutral observer, it's pretty clear that Palestine needs elections. I said the last presidential elections, 2005, Politically, Palestinians need to unite. Political leaders need to reconnect people and politics. One voice, one nonviolent voice. For here, I would say the second Intifada and the suicide bombers has contributed hugely to the loss of trust between the two peoples that we see now. For Israel, again, as a neutral observer, a realization that a greater Israel equals apartheid. And for the US, not to be the sole player as even Kerry was, because that didn't work. This morning, I heard from Mustafa Barghouti that he wants to see a role for the quartet, which is the US, UN, Russia, and the European Union, who in the past have effectively been run by the US. I favor a role for the United Nations Security Council, including the US, obviously, and the rule of law and those Security Council resolutions that we can remember. And consequences. Consequences for illegality, whoever commits that. No government in the West or the East wants to talk about consequences for formal annexation or galloping incremental de facto annexation. It's possible that the quartet could keep the US honest, reporting to the UN Security Council rather than ignoring the UN Security Council or baiting it, which is what Trump has done for the last four years. 
May I turn now back to the, the working rule of the Balfour Project. If you're British and care, start at home, the democratic way. Make your voice heard. If your MP isn't listening, speak louder. Seek consequences for illegality and highlight the differences, the discrepancies between what we say and what we do as a government. We do some things well as a government. We don't do enough and have been saying the platitudes and the condemnations for too long. Nobody can argue against equal rights. We British and the Israelis have freedom of movement, freedom of religious expression and worship. Palestinians don't. We British and Israelis police ourselves. Israel polices Palestine selectively. We British and the Israelis control our own borders. Israel controls Palestinian borders and determines who comes and who goes. May I finish before questions by referring to the Balfour Project's last big event, which was on the 27th of October with a focus on Jerusalem. And I'd like to read out the asks of our government which have been endorsed by uh, a large number, scores of British parliamentarians and church leaders. The statement says, the Jewish people exercised their right to self-determination in the Holy Land more than 70 years ago. To this day, the Palestinian people are denied this right. This injustice must end. And here I would simply add that back in 1999, the European Council endorsed the principle of self-determination for the Palestinian people, including the option of statehood, 21 years ago. The five asks, reaffirm publicly East Jerusalem's status under international law as occupied Palestinian territory and oppose current systematic efforts to undermine this status to press for true freedom of access for all believers, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian, to their respective holy sites in Jerusalem, from wherever they live, which means in particular from the West Bank to the Al-Aqsa and from Gaza to the Al-Aqsa. Number three, work effectively to uphold the rule of law reflected in those UN Security Council resolutions, particularly 2334, which condemns illegal Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied Palestinian territory. Four, insist that Israel end forthwith its discriminatory practices in Jerusalem, enabling all Jerusalemites to enjoy the same rights and services, regardless of creed or nationality. There is a huge disproportion in the allocation of resources, but equality in the tax 
system. And finally, recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel, now with Jerusalem as the shared capital of both states. I'll conclude. We should thank the American people for sparing us four more years of Trump. We should be deeply grateful. But don't relax. It's not over until we see genuine equal rights between Israelis and Palestinians. We're a long way from that. And the status quo is going the wrong way fast. Kerry was right and prophetic. But there are people in the US, UK, Europe, we're in Europe, but you know what I mean, Israel and Palestine who care and want positive change. They and we all have to make more of a noise. Please don't let anyone tell you that it doesn't matter because it does. And please don't think we can't do anything because we can. Thank you. And now back to Diana for questions. Thanks for that, Vincent. We've had some uh, very interesting questions come through um, and we have some from um, that have come in advance. So I will sort of um, flip between them. Let's start with, um, a question about Kamala Harris. Um, Kamala Harris promised $38 billion in military support for Israel's security and self-defense. How does that secure Palestinian rights to self-determination or defend their political and human rights? Thank you. I think you told me, um, Diana, that came from, from Heba. Yes. She's uh, Heba's music. I'd like to pay tribute to Heba for her work with uh, PAL Music, um, ensuring that the Palestinian cultural voice and expression is, is heard here in the UK. Um, to try and answer the question, that figure of $38 billion is familiar to me. I think it came from the Obama era um, and it was one of Obama's last acts in his last year. Um, it didn't secure any leverage over the actions of the Israeli government in relation to the occupation. I think that it would be foolish to think that America will ever not have Israel's back. It's intrinsic in America to support the existence, the well-being, the prosperity, the growth, economic growth, I mean, rather than geographical, of the state of Israel. And it is not actually contradictory to work for Palestinian rights at the same time. Those remarks by Kamala Harris are uh, freely made and she can be held to account for it. And I suspect that the, the easy ones will get done. Opposition to annexation, opposition to uh, settlements, harder. Um, but I come back to Heber's point. I think we need to accept uh, that 
the United States will always be an ally of Israel. Frankly, so will the United Kingdom. But that does not mean that the United States and the UK should not focus on the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people, expressed as they see fit, in whatever mean, by whatever means. Um, the logical means is by elections leading to the formation of a government. And I'll just add that that point five of the Jerusalem statement that I read out is a key part of the thinking of, of the Balfour Project. We do believe that parity of esteem between Israelis and Palestinians means that states should recognize both states, starting with us, starting here at home. Um, I would like to just say that we've got Sui Yang with us today, who's one of the co-founders of MAP, Medical Aid for Palestinians. Um, Vincent and I are big fans of her, aren't we? Um, so this is just a comment from her that I thought you would like to hear. She says, amazing and uplifting talk. Thank you so much for me and everyone else. Just thought you'd like that. Little compliment in between the questions. Hi, Sui. <laughs> um, a quick word, Diana, just to say that there, there, are, many there are many charities active to, to try to be of use in the world, in the health sector. Medical aid for Palestinians, in my opinion, uh, in that sector is the best. They are fantastic. Um, right, so the next question is from Martin Linton, who's with us. Um, we're also big fans of Martin Linton. Um, even if a new Biden administration ends up reversing all of Trump's policy changes, changes, it would only mean that things had returned to where they were before. Do you agree that progress will only come if and when Biden makes it clear that supporting international law and supporting human rights includes supporting the Palestinian right of self-determination? The short answer is yes. Thank you, Martin. The short answer is yes. Um, I don't want to raise false hopes because Biden the pragmatist, Biden the realist may not prioritize this issue. It's up to us and it's up to people in the United States to uh, help him to uh, make the decision to prioritize this issue. And I'm rather hopeful that um, some of the uh, recent elections to the House of Representatives will help in that matter because the base of the Democrat party is changing and is moving, is becoming more liberal, more progressive. Um, but back to the question. Self-determination. I am hopeful, hopeful, that um, President-elect Biden will make a priority of restoring faith in the United Nations, in the United Nations Security Council, in the international institutions that, frankly, Trump has degraded. Um, as part of that, the rules-based order the rule of international law needs to be upheld. The Geneva Conventions, uh, even the ICC, those independent institutions need to be supported and upheld. Um, I don't suppose he will go out of his way to bless the ICC. But in terms of the uh, need for international negotiation and a means of ensuring that that negotiation sticks that once an agreement is reached, it is upheld. That's in, our, in all our interests. 
be it on climate change, be it on any, any big issue around the world. And I'm hoping that as part of that refresh, if you like, of the international institutions and uh, reconfirmation of their necessity, I would hope that this issue and the rule of law in this context can be affirmed. Um, kind of following on from that then, um, Michael Hindley, former MEP, also with us, um, asks about recognition of Palestine. May I raise the question of recognition of Palestine as a trading entity, as a customs territory under the auspices of the World Trade Organization? And he um, expanded in the chat box, uh, Biden will certainly be less hostile to WTO than Trump. So is there an opening there? It's true that um, Trump sought to degrade the WTO. He was quite insulting and um, he far preferred strong arm tactics bilaterally than the recourse to international law, international rules. Uh, Michael's quite right. Um, joining the WTO as a state is a Palestinian aspiration. Uh, Michael's closer to the action than me uh, from his time as a member of the European Parliament. And I, I don't know what obstacles lie in its way. It's possible that United States opposition is part of that. And I come back to the question of recognition of the state of Palestine. If Britain and some of our European partners were to recognize the state of Palestine, that would no doubt strengthen the hand uh, of the Palestinian negotiators in the WTO. Um, I think it's quite important that the Palestinians, Palestine, should have a voice in international institutions, in UNESCO, in the UN General Assembly, a voice through the Arab representative in the UN Security Council, um, and in the, in the WTO. It may take time, but it's a mark of maturity, it's a mark of arrival, it's a mark of respect that, that Palestine should be represented in those fora. Um, thanks for that. Got a very interesting question from Magan. Sorry, I'm um, blitzing through them, but we've just had so many interesting questions and I want to hear your answers on all of them. So Magan Singodia, um, Jewish lobbies have just mentioned that Trump's passing shot might be to complete annexation of the West Bank. The reason being that Biden will not be able to reverse this. What are your thoughts on this? Where things stand on annexation is rather vague. Um, the UAE, when it normalized with Israel, said, we've stopped it. Netanyahu said, oh no, you haven't. Uh, we've suspended it, but it's still on the table. I have a guess, it's a guess, it's a guess, that Mr. Netanyahu will not wish to immediately uh, demonstrate that the UAE's remarks were uh, misplaced, nor, I think, will he wish to start his relationship with President Biden by doing something which is not only in reality wrong, but legally wrong, um, morally and legally. So my guess is that formal annexation of parts of the West Bank will be still in suspense. 
uh, and probably President Biden will seek to make that a more permanent situation. But I come back to one of the remarks in my talk. It's all very well to suspend formal annexation, and that's a good thing, not to have formal annexation. Um, our Prime Minister argued against it, and I give him credit for that. Um, but that doesn't stop the incremental annexation by settlement expansion. And what has happened in recent months is that Prime Minister Netanyahu, at the instigation of his right wing, um, but probably of his own volition too, um, has announced settlement growth in remarkably sensitive areas where if carried out, then the prospective uh, contiguity of a state of Palestine would be in question. And that's deliberate. The attempt is to deliberately uh, stop contiguity. Um, so in my head, trying to combat the incremental annexation by de facto settlement expansion is just as important as contesting the annexation proper. And we need to try and make sure that Boris Johnson gets that. Um, still on the topic of settlement expansion um, that you were just mentioning, um, this is from Kate Scott. She's asked in the chat box, um, even if, and it's a big if, settlement expansion and the takeover of East Jerusalem ceases, when you look at the present map, is there land for a Palestine? Is there still a possibility of a two-state solution? It's a big question, and I'm not going to duck it. Um, I hope that it is still possible. Many wise people think it's over. Um, much depends on the will of the Palestinian people. My own take is that we are witnessing two nationalist movements, one Israeli and one Palestinian. As we said in our Jerusalem statement, uh, Israel has achieved self-determination back in 1948. The Palestinians have yet to achieve it because the occupation prevents sovereignty, which is part of an act of self-determination. Um, where am I going with this? To say it probably isn't for me to declare the two-state solution alive or dead. I want it to be alive, but it's really not for me to declare. What it is for the Belfort Project to, state, to say is that we believe in equal rights. And if we believe in equal rights, the status quo, frankly, forgive me, stinks. And therefore, our effort should be devoted to advancing equal rights. And I would add just one rider to that, that the political will of the Palestinian people and their choice as to how they live their lives, in the end, will be a determining factor, of course, of course, with the will of the Israeli people. And what I want is an outcome where both of those peoples can live in peace. Um, the next comment and question is from Tom Phillips. 
He's asked, um, he says, thanks for your remarks, Vincent. I admire your courage and your persistence. Um, he says, you spoke about Britain's historic responsibility, but surely with Brexit, et cetera, there's zero UK appetite to play any sort of role on this one. For years, our approach has essentially been to leave it to the Americans and neither the latter nor the Israelis want us in the room. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think most, I think, I think that's true. Uh, the um, Israelis like talking to the Americans. The Israeli government likes talking to the Americans. And one reason, certainly under Trump and maybe under Obama as well, is that they think they have a more than equal chance of winning in a negotiation involving the Americans. Um, the UK is preoccupied by uh, Brexit, by COVID, by jobs, by reality. And the issue of what priority to give to this challenge, which has been a challenge for decades, but is getting worse, um, is to argue, and the Belfort Project argues, that in spite of all that, uh, our foreign secretary and our prime minister should make an effort because it's good for us as well as being good for the region. I'll make one aside about radicalization. The reality is that this issue remains a cause of radicalization in our country and across Europe, across the world. And unless it is addressed and solved, that that trigger, that trigger for radicalization will remain. And it needs to be eradicated. The only way to eradicate it is to resolve the issue, to resolve the fundamentals. So I would argue that UK national self-interest, as well as the well-being of the two peoples, is in play here. Um, that may not be what John, Boris Johnson wakes up in the morning thinking, but his constituents and our listeners can help to make him think it. Thanks for that, Vincent. Um, you touched on this a little bit with regards to um, other Arab countries and the relationships with Israel. This question's from Joe Fitzpatrick. Um, how will the US presidential elections affect US relations with other countries in the Arab League, which may in turn affect Palestine-Israel relations? It's a good question. Um, I'll start with Jordan. Um, Jordan is a neighbor. Jordan has a peace treaty with Israel, a cold peace, if I may say so, but a, a peace treaty with Israel. And Jordan is directly affected by anything that affects the Palestinians. We're, we're familiar with Jordan's role as protector of the holy sites in Jerusalem. Um, Jordan is a state that Britain and the US care about and have long had a good relationship with. Um, Jordan's voice against annexation was very strong. Uh, if hope fades to zero on a resolution of this conflict, Jordan will be the first place to feel the pain outside Palestine. From now on, I'm gonna be a bit speculative because I, I don't know as much as uh, Tom Phillips and others about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Um, 
the Saudi role under King Salman has been supportive of, um, of the PLO, uh, has been supportive, broadly speaking, of, um, of Abbas, and has been a, I think, a restraining, a restraining factor um, on the normalization process. But uh, his son may have other views. The Saudis will now be looking at President-elect Biden and trying to work out their line to take. Likewise, the UAE, uh, which proved to be a, a close friend of Trump and led the normalization process. Uh, and here I'll just say two things. Um, one is when the dust settles, the Arab states will want to, will need to reform in the Arab League. Today, it is not at its strongest, to put it diplomatically, but they will want to reform and they will want to come back together as uh, an entity because that gives them additional political clout. Um, and the second thing I wanted to say is that some of the states that have been remarkably close to Trump will wish to ensure that they have a, work, a good working relationship with Biden because, as I, as I said at the beginning, the U.S. is the sole military, certainly, superpower uh, in the world. And to a large extent, uh, the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia and their uh, continuity of rule depend on that good relationship. So I would hope that the Arab League will reform, reshape. Um, I would hope, this is a rather fond hope, that the Arab Peace Initiative may still live. Um, and one thing, one thing to, else to add, it's unrealistic to expect any state such as the UK, which has recognized Israel, to do other than applaud when another state does the same. So Boris Johnson and Trump and Biden and Macron, Merkel, will applaud any act of normalization by an Arab state with Israel. But it rather depends on what conditions, and I'm talking about the Arab state's position now, whether they will make it a point of reference in such normalization to safeguard Palestinian rights. The UAE said it had done something good over annexation. Palestinians beg to differ. I heard that today as well. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is that normalization may well come, may well come. I would like the Arab Peace Initiative to live. Thanks for that, Vincent. Um, we've had quite a lot of discussion in the chat box about um, um, Israel's policies being apartheid policies. Um, David Arnold, his comment is um, that surely the use of apartheid is misleading because it implies that Israel, i.e. within the 67 borders, is an apartheid state as was South Africa. This description doesn't, in my opinion, fit. The occupied territories are a different matter and it does not help to confuse the two. Do you have any um, comment on that? I go back to 
Kerry, um, separate and unequal. I look at the daily life of the Palestinians that I worked with in, in Jerusalem, trying to get in from the West Bank into Jerusalem to do a job. They queued at Kalandia. If they were West Bankers, they couldn't drive into Jerusalem, had to use public transport uh, or taxis. Um, there were certain roads in the West Bank that they couldn't use, settler roads. Uh, they were not allowed access to the settlements other than to build them. Ironically, Palestinians need jobs and building settlements is a job. Um, but once the settlement is built, there's a fence. There are people with guns who guard the settlement. There are firing ranges in the West Bank when those firing ranges could be in the Negev Desert in southern Israel. They're there for a reason. They're there to prevent Palestinians from living and developing agriculture there. Is that apartheid? I'm not wedded to the word. I know that the context of South Africa is a different context from the context of Israel-Palestine. But I go back to separate and unequal. I think that's beyond contestation. And separate and unequal is wrong. Thanks for that. Um, so we've got a comment from Maureen Jack, which I'm sure you'd be very happy to address um, or willing to address, I should say. Um, it's not Im immediately relevant to today's topic, but I'd be interested to hear your view on the possible impact of the death of Saeed Barakat. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Um, I went to Jericho almost on a pilgrimage once a week on a Friday from uh, Jerusalem in my time, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a true fact from the Bible, uh, going down to the Dead Sea. And I went to see Sabarikat. I went to see Sabarikat because he mattered. He was articulate. He was clever, uh, also stubborn. And um, he told us his truth. And one of the jobs of the consulate general is to feedback to London the um, views of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. He was good at that. Uh, if I may say, with no disrespect to the dead, sometimes a bit repetitive, but he was good at that. And he was bright. And what shone through was his sincerity, his concern for his people. I read today or yesterday that he was born in Jerusalem, but he is a... Uh, he is a man of Jericho, um, elected there, and he epitomized the effort, the negotiating effort of the PLO under Arafat and after Arafat for decades. He felt strongly that the negotiating effort 
needed to succeed because the alternative of violence or oppression had to fail. We shall miss him. Um, it isn't clear who will take his place. It isn't frankly clear when and whether there will be negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. We haven't talked much about that today. Um, if Mr. Netanyahu only wants to talk about autonomy, sovereignty minus, and further land acquisition by Israel, then that isn't a basis for discussion. So back to Saab. We shall miss him. I'm grateful, Maureen, for the opportunity to say so. And his memory for me will be sincerity, effort, honesty, and dedication to equal rights, as he believed in peaceful coexistence between the two states and the two peoples. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to respond to a comment from Rod Cox, um, who asks about asking MPs and um, uh, peers, Baroness Tong, um, to ask questions in Parliament. And I wanted to highlight that we have a, a section on the website, which I will post a link in the chat box to, um, where we um, we post a lot of the questions that have been asked in Parliament. Many have been submitted by um, people related to the Balfour project. So I will post that link in a minute. Um, so I'm going to give you the final question, Vincent, if you don't mind, um, from Mehdi Askaria. Um, he asks, how can the Balfour project and other similar organizations push the new American administration into real action? Mm -hmm. um, I ask this because Bibi Netanyahu has already started his charm offensive on Biden. Mm -hmm. Well, the Balfour Project's main focus, as, as I've tried to say, is on ourselves, is on the Brits. Um, I would not underestimate the uh, scope for the British government to direct its advice, which it will be doing, to the uh, Biden transitional team. Um, what I'm hearing I don't know detail, but what I'm hearing is that the Biden transitional team encompasses a large number of uh, experts, if you like, from the Obama era, which is not surprising. If they've read the speech, I think um, somebody in the chat I caught said, sadly, the senator hadn't read the speech. Um, if, if they in the transition have read the Kerry speech. That's a start, because four years ago, he was predicting inequality and separation without change. And four years on, we are where we are. We're in a worse position, particularly if you're Palestinian, than four years ago. And hope is dwindling. Um, it must not be allowed to be extinguished. Um, so back to what we can do. We have to start at home. I think we start with our own parliamentary process, uh, getting in touch with our, our MP. The statement I read out can be sent to them and asked if they will sign it. And then it goes on to Dominic Raab. It talks about recognition. It talks about 
international law, it talks about things that matter. So if you're looking for a, a peg on which to hang an approach to your MP, that's it. That's the current one. It's a good one. I would, I would recommend it. Um, we should reach out, but there are other institutions than the Balfour Project actually doing this. We should reach out to young American thinkers, to members of the Jewish community, both in the UK and in the United States, who do not believe that Netanyahu in any sense represents them and do not approve of the annexation process of the settlement expansion process. We should reach out to them. That's probably a job for others, but let's not leave it to others. Uh, we can try, we can try. Um, but one way or another, I think it's our job to try to ensure that this issue is not left. Because if it's left, as we have seen, it gets worse and it's already bad. So holding the line is one thing, holding the line of UK government policy, but making it better by making it action oriented and making it consequence oriented on illegality. If I may just add one remark, which is not related to what I've just said. Um, you said at the beginning, Deanna, that we live off our, uh, our wits and, uh, and donations. I would simply end by saying that for the people who are listening, uh, please think about a donation to the Balfour Project. We will be able to do more with more and we need enough to keep doing what we're doing now. Thank you. And I've just posted the subtly our donation link in the chat box on that note. Thank you so much, Vincent, for uh, stepping in last minute and giving just such a fascinating talk. And thank you everyone for coming along and uh, joining us as well. Um, you've been great. There's been such interesting questions. I'm really sorry we didn't have time to get through to all of them. We we're already a little bit over time, but um, there was just so much that we wanted to talk about. So Vincent, thank you very much. And we will see everyone at our next webinar, which will be announced shortly. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you for making it happen. And thank you for those who stayed the course. Thank you. Good night.